Let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter number 12. It's good to have all of our guests with us here this morning. Uh, I wanted to just go ahead and tell you right up front, for whatever reason, I'm kind of in a little bit of a solemn mood here today. And uh, I know last week I was a little bit uh, wound up. Maybe the Lord says, hey, it's time to settle down for whatever reason. But rest assured that even though I'm a little bit um, solemn here this morning, I do believe that the message that God has for us is an extremely important one. And perhaps maybe the spirit uh, that I'm in here this morning is exactly what the Lord uh, would have in order for the message to be delivered and received the way that God would have it. Hebrews chapter number 12 and beginning in verse number 13 The Bible says, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of identifying and overcoming bitterness. We don't have a PowerPoint here this morning. Uh, I was mentioning how the devil has been fighting and working uh, for whatever reason. You know how the devil will sometimes show up in computers. My wife worked so hard putting together this PowerPoint, and I feel so bad for her. The computer completely lost it, and uh, I'm not sure um, exactly what happened, but we tried to get Brother Moody to recover it, and he failed miserably. I mean, he was not able to... Anyhow, I feel bad for my wife. She put in a lot of hard work with that, and I mostly feel bad for me and somewhat for Brother Moody, but uh, anyhow, I told Brother Coppinger, I said, what are we going to do without a PowerPoint? I guess we just preach the Bible, amen? Amen. So I want to speak this morning on overcoming and identifying uh, bitterness. Father, uh, we pray that you would help us here this morning. God, uh, I know that uh, probably everyone here this morning needs this message. If they don't need it uh, today, they probably needed it yesterday. And uh, if, if we didn't need it yesterday and we don't need it today, I'm sure that every one of us at some point in life uh, are going to need these principles. Lord, I don't want to fail delivering this message in a way that you can use it. So I pray that you would fill me now with the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would help this message and help all of the listeners today. I don't know their hearts, I don't know their lives, I don't know their hurts, but I know that you know. And I pray, Father, that uh, uh, something uh, helpful, something life-changing would be accomplished through the service today. Bless all of our live stream listeners as well. Take and use this sermon for your glory and honor and for the help of some uh, struggling soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think I can say without any fear of contradiction that this is a very bitter generation. 
Psychology has become the authority in both the pulpit and the classroom. Consequently, it has become the authority of the home. The generation of parents and grandparents today were steeped in self-love, self-gratification. I guess we we talk about self-esteem, and really self-esteem is just nothing more than self-love. And they're taught to question and blame authority for everything bad that happens to them and everything bad that happens in general. Victimization has uh, has to be justified and someone has to be blamed. The climate and soil of today is perfect for a bumper crop of bitterness. So what exactly is bitterness? According to modern dictionary, it is the anger and disappointment from being treated unfairly. And then synonymous with that is some type of resentment. If you've ever tasted anything bitter, you understand the verbal description of what happens to the human heart and spirit. There there is a substance called bitrex. And it's considered by the Guinness Book of World Records to be the most bitter substance on earth. It was invented by scientists in 1958 while they were working on a new local anesthetic. It is chemically harmless, but you can put one thimbleful into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. That's 660 thousand gallons of water, you can put one thimbleful in that swimming pool and find it difficult to drink the water because it is so bitter. Folks, that's that's some pretty serious bitterness. Bitterness in our lives takes on many forms and it affects many different ways. But one thing is for certain, it is never a good thing. There's a contrast here in the Word of God between two ladies. One of them is named Naomi and the other one is named Hannah. In Ruth 1, verse number 20, the Bible says, She said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Now, here is Naomi who her and her family went down and sojourned in Moab. Because there was a famine. There was circumstances that made them feel like that we would be better off in Moab than we would be in God's country. A lot of times we talk about different parts of the country. Well, this is God's country. And people that like the Rocky Mountains say this is God's country. People that like the Appalachian Mountains say this is God's country. People who live in Arizona say, man, we got to go to God's country somewhere. (laughs) Especially this time of year, it gets awfully, awfully hot in Arizona. But, you know, people, if you have a place that you like, you call it God's country. Well, Palestine, if you will, that's what we commonly refer to it, was the land that God had for the children of Israel. And nowhere did God say, hey, if if you're struggling a little bit, just go sojourn in Moab. What God said is, if you're struggling a little bit, there's a, a cause There's a famine in the land. You need to figure out why God has withdrawn his blessings. Folks, in America today, God has withdrawn his blessings. 
It's no secret. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the blessings of God have been withdrawing from this country and we're starting to, we're really seeing the results and I'm afraid it's going to continue to wax worse and worse. And so Naomi and her family, they go down to Moab. Her husband dies. Her two sons die. She comes back with one daughter-in-law and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. God has dealt very bitterly with me. As a contrast, Hannah, who is the mother of the prophet Samuel, in 1 Samuel 1.10, it says that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. It doesn't say that she stuck her head in the sand and, you know, tried to flatter God with this fake faith and say, oh, God, you're so good, everything's so wonderful. No, she had bitterness of soul. She was willing to be real before God, but the difference is Naomi said, change my name to bitter. Hannah said, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray and pour out my soul to God. It appears to me that Naomi was somewhat blaming God, but Hannah was recognizing that my lot in life here is not God's fault. God is not the one to be blamed here. God is the one that can help me if I can just get his attention and if he would just be willing. How many times have we been hurting before and we know that God can answer our prayer, but we just don't know if he's willing to answer our prayer? Many, many times I've said, God, I know that you can if you just will. It's like the leper who said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. We know that God can fix our problems, but we also know from experience that God is not the genie in the bottle God that's just there to grant us our wish and all we have to do is rub the bottle. Listen, God put us here for His glory. We are the servants and He is the master. And we've got a generation of Christians that think that God's here to serve us. And folks, that is the cart before the horse. What a contrast between Naomi and Hannah. Now let's talk a little bit about the Bible definition of the term bitterness. The first mention of the word bitter is found in Genesis 27 verse 34. And of course, you have the law of first mention in the Bible where very frequently, not 100% of the time, but very frequently when you find the first time a word is used in the Bible, a lot of times it gives you a real good solid definition of that word. Genesis 27 verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father... He cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Once again, we see in the Bible that Esau shows up and he's associated with bitterness. Jacob had come in and he had, Jacob had already um, connived Esau out of the birthright and then he goes in and he fools his dad. And Jacob ends up blessed, and then Esau shows up just not long afterward, after Jacob leaves. And you know, there's something miraculous about 
that whole hoax that Jacob and his mama pulled on, on Jacob's dad. I mean, I mean, I know that Esau was a hairy man, but really to feel goat skin, I mean, something there, God had to have intervened. And uh, for some reason, he withheld uh, Jacob from getting found out. But anyhow, Esau shows up and he's crying in bitterness because he wanted that blessing so bad. I find the second mention of the term bitterness in the Bible, the law of second mention. I just made that up. There is no law of second mention. But it is worth mentioning. How about that? Exodus 1.14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. That bitterness uh, of hard bondage, that is what Pharaoh and the Egyptians were doing to God's people, the children of Israel. And so we can see that bitterness is not a good thing. It, it's a very, very terrible condition. And uh, before we go into more details on what the Scripture says about bitterness, I'm going to throw in a little section here that may or may not be helpful, but let me preface the next two sections of my sermon with a very strong preface. What I'm getting ready to tell you is not the Word of God, it is the Word of man. What does the world's counsel say about bitterness? You say, well, preacher, why are you even wasting our time talking about what the world has to say? Well, I, you know, I draw this from Acts 17, 28, where Paul is making a point there at Mars Hill, and he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the Apostle Paul was did not consider it compromise to throw in a statement that, hey, what I'm getting ready to tell you is a lot like what your own poets have already said. Not authoritative, not the Word of God, but maybe, maybe some things that I'm getting ready to say you might find some kind of help in. But the preface is, it's not absolute truth. Maybe contains truth, maybe not. Now these next two sections are simply the first things that popped up when I did a Google search, okay? So I didn't glean through and figure out the best ones I just wanted you to get an idea of what the world has to say about the subject of bitterness. And I figured the first thing that pops up is certainly going to be a, a good representation of the world's viewpoint. Eight signs that you are bitter. Number one, you think you deserve more than what you get in love and in life. You know, I'd say I have to agree with that observation that bitter people think that they deserve better than what they got. Number two, you don't feel satisfied with your present achievements. Number three, you think everyone is out to get you. Number four, you don't appreciate how good people treat you. You know, we'll see here even from the scripture how that bitterness just it it 
permeates so much of the spirit and that it will affect your perception to the point that you will, the, the people who do you wrong are totally blown out of proportion in your feelings and in your mind, but the people that treat you right just kind of, it doesn't even really make that big of an impression. So I think there's some truth to that, that the bitter person doesn't appreciate how good people treat them. Number five, you don't acknowledge other people's skills. Number six, it's hard for you to congratulate other people on their success. Number seven, you communicate to criticize, not to engage. And, and I think that what the author is saying is that people who are bitter, it just, it makes them critical. They always are going to have a critical slant on everything that they're talking about in conversation. You bring up somebody that, that you know, you say something good about somebody and they'll inadvertently always bring it back to some sort of criticism. And the conversation very seldom gets to a meaningful state. It's always about people and failures and always something negative that is perceived about other people. Number eight, you like, uh, you dislike cheerful and confident individuals. Boy, nothing more annoying to the bitter person than the person that is happy all of the time. I mean, the person who's just carefree, happy-go-lucky, everything's just wonderful, they really get on the nerves of the bitter person. So there's eight signs of bitterness from Google once again. And now here's ten steps to overcome your bitterness. Once again, by uh, Google, some lady named Lucy Smith, have no idea who she is, couldn't care less. Number one, take a step back. Take a step back. What do they mean by that? They mean that it's easy to get caught up in your emotions. Now, there's a great principle that applies to everything that we go through, brothers and sisters. We're living in a day and age where people are taught or trained to let your emotions lead you, whereas the Scripture says that we are supposed to lead our emotions, I'm not saying that that's an easy proposition because feelings can be very strong. And some strong feelings are not always the easiest of feelings to lead. And bitterness certainly is one of those. But our bitterness should not be leading us. We should be leading our feelings. So take a step back before you let your emotions uh, overwhelm you. Number two, write it down. Now, for the most part, I agree with that statement to the sense that whenever we're going through a rough time, a hurt, a conflict, bitterness, if you will, it's always a good thing to put our feelings into words because words turn our feelings into concepts. And a concept, a principle, can be dealt with, but a feeling sometimes is just a whirlwind that's swirling around in our heart, and it just seems like that we can't, we, we just can't seem to grab a hold of it and do anything with it. But when you sit down and you start writing out 
And, and really, that brings me to the, the third point here that the person says, talk it out. And that can be helpful if you have the right confidant. If you have somebody that you trust, that knows you, that's not going to give you bad advice and make you the victim, then certainly whether you talk to somebody that is wise and caring and knowing, or whether you sit down and write it out, my personal experience from counsel is that sometimes taking those feelings, putting them into words and thoughts, it makes it more manageable. I can't tell you how many times that I've been going through something that it just seemed like my feelings are just all over the place, and I would talk to somebody, and it forces you to, once again, take those emotions, turn them into words, and now... Not necessarily easy, but at least I know what I'm dealing with here, and I can face it. I've shared this with you on numerous occasions. After my father was killed in an accident, that for really a year, a little over a year, I struggled emotionally, and I didn't understand why. I I, I said to God, God, I'm not I'm not bitter. I'm not mad. I understand that you're sovereign, and if it was your will to take my dad out of my life, you're good. I accept that. I wasn't overly uh, grieving. I was grieving. I missed him. Yes, that was part of it. But really, I, I just thought, why do I feel this way? And And it took God, just what I'm talking about, putting what I was really feeling into thoughts and words and ideas before I could see it. And once I saw it for what it was, dealing with it wasn't that big of a deal. But just kind of trying to, to calm the, the tornado of emotions, I found that impossible to do. Number four, don't talk too much. And I totally agree with that one. Uh, you know, if you talk too much about your bitterness, you know what happens is it just keeps it growing. It's like miracle grow on your bitterness. If you've ever put miracle grow on something in your garden, it's just like, man, it works fast. And I mean, it just makes your plant, it maybe doesn't last real long, but boy, it it really is effective. Talking about your hurts and your bitterness, all it does is just, Really, it's like fertilizer, nitrogen on, and, and those roots just go deeper and deeper and deeper. Talking too much about it is not a healthy thing. It can make it worse. Number five, the, um, the author here says, meditate. Now, I gotta be honest with you, that's stupid. Meditate. I, I'm not saying it's wrong to think. I've already been talking about Talking, writing, think, you know, doing a little bit of thinking here, but to meditate, what is that? Like yoga? Um, that's stupid because the answer is not in here, okay? I'll tell you what would be better than meditate is pray. Prayer can do the same thing because, you know, it, it all comes down to the same thing. We are having to talk to God about how we feel. And it puts our feelings into concepts and words and somebody that we know. When we don't know how to communicate how we feel, we know that the person we're communicating knows more about us than we do. 
And so that's comforting, not to mention the fact that God uh, can and will intervene at uh, certainly at his timing and and according to his will. Number six, uh, the author says, get your blood pumping. You know what they're saying? They're saying get some exercise because if you're struggling emotionally, endorphins can be helpful to your mental outlook. Well, that's certainly practical and I, I can't, I don't think it's the answer, but maybe it might help you a little bit. Number seven, the author says, confront it, confront your bitterness. I wrote in my notes next to this point, great big caution exclamation point. Caution, confronting your bitterness. Hey, listen, for one person, that may be exactly what they need to do. For the other person, that could be a total disaster. And so I would say you better be really, really careful with that one. Number eight, be accountable. And what the author means by that is accept responsibility for your feelings. Number nine, set goals and make plans. Hey, what psychology doesn't add somewhere in their list to set goals and plans? Okay, I'm going to plan this out here. I'm going to, I'm going to process through my bitterness and I'm going to put this on my calendar. By the time I get to September, uh, I plan on being past this bitterness. Once again, that's just stupid. Number 10, determine your future. Okay, I determine my future. You know what I, I would say would be a better way of putting that is figure out how to let go of the past. There's some stuff that we just got to let it go. And there's, you know, bitterness is one of those things that if you've been bitter for a long time, you're going to find it really, really hard to let go because it's almost like that bitterness has defined who you are, and even though you don't like the bitterness, you're comfortable with your bitterness. You're familiar with your bitterness, and there's a lot of people that just have a hard time of letting it go. So there's some Google stuff for you. Throw it in. Maybe something there is helpful by way of observation. Who knows? But um, uh, what I want to get to next is bitterness in light of the Bible. What I'm getting ready to tell you now is God's Word, our Creator, the one who knows our very frame, knows all about our emotions and about all of our feelings. This is what I'd have to say, the the real important part of today's sermon. Number one, bitterness is poisonous. The use of the word bitter we find in Exodus 15 verse 23 It says, when they came to Mara, there's that word Mara again, it's a place. And the Bible says they could not drink of the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And of course, God had Moses cut down a tree. They put the tree into the water and the the waters were healed. Now, what we need to understand is from a Bible definition that this bitter water, they couldn't drink of it, not because of the taste of it, but because that bitterness was a description, not just of the taste, but the fact that those waters were poisonous. Uh, I, I was watching one of these animal shows just a few days ago, and there's some places in the Sahara, Sahara Desert, I don't know why I said that wrong, in the Sahara Desert in North Africa, where there's actually water that's coming up from the ground. 
and you look at it, it looks like a great oasis. But the problem is, is the water goes in, but none of it goes out. And so all of the salt and the minerals just accumulate to the point to where that water is poisonous. You don't find animals drinking at that water hole. Why? Because they, they are smart enough to recognize that if the water is poisonous, then I'm not going to drink of it. In Revelation 8, in verse number 11, it says, The name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. So according to the Bible, bitterness is a descriptive term of something that is poisonous. You know, if you've been harboring bitterness, you have been harboring poison. Uh, They talk in in health terms today about getting detoxed. You know, the the soul, uh, many people's souls need a good detoxing. Because that bitterness that we harbor, we've allowed in and it's we've not dealt with it. It is poisoning our spirit. It's poisoning our attitude. It's poisoning our personality. It's poisoning every aspect of our life. Number two, bitterness is inexorable. Now, that's one of these words I have to explain it. But I will. So be patient with me. Inexorable. What does that word mean? It means hard to get rid of. Bitterness is very difficult to get rid of. We read in Hebrews 12 here, it talked about a root of bitterness. How many of you have Bermuda grass in your yard? You try to get rid of that Bermuda grass. Let me know how that goes for you. Because that Bermuda grass, it just creeps all along the the ground. If you wait three and a half days to mow... It's already popping up seeds, and so it's putting seeds down, and everywhere it creeps out on the ground, it's putting down new roots. And so, I mean, you can pull up all kinds of vines of this Bermuda grass, but you're, you're only getting some of the roots. It's just, it's, it's all over the place. It's very hard to get rid of. I, I had never heard of this weed called nutsedge until a few years ago. And I tell you, if you want a good, I mean, if you want a good crop of nutsedge, here's what you do. Spray Roundup on it. It loves that stuff. <laughs> I mean, we tried everything and it's just, it's just hard to get rid of. Well, that's the way that bitterness is. Now, this, this term inexorable on, uh, on hard to get rid of, I got to throw this in for free because I really was amused when I was researching this word, hard to get rid of. Uh, in in uh, When I Googled this up, I don't know why I've been Googling so much this morning, but it says hard to get rid of, synonym, English thesaurus, dyed in the wool, immovable, inflexible, intransigent, reactionary, <laughs> the next word. Ultra conservative, <laughs> uncompromising, unreconstructed. I just looked at that and I go, really? Something that's hard to get rid of. And whoever wrote that American definition threw in the term ultra conservative. 
That's what they think of us. We're hard to get rid of. We're immovable. Well, certainly bitterness is very immovable, very difficult to get rid of, especially once it gets roots in our soul. Number three, bitterness is defiling. Uh, Look here once again at Hebrews chapter number 12. And of course, here we see um, in verse number 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up. So there's that root of bitterness. But notice it says that that root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You know what this tells us about bitterness, folks? That it can be a root, just like when you pull a weed and you get everything on the surface off, but you leave the root in the ground and the right conditions, a little bit of water, a little bit of nitrogen, the right temperature, boom, it's back. You ever notice that there are some weeds you can pull if you leave the root, they're back the next morning? I mean, it's just crazy. That's the way that bitterness is. But that bitterness, it says that it troubles us. If you're a bitter person, your bitterness is troubling you. But notice it says, and thereby many be defiled. You know what that tells us about bitterness? It doesn't just affect us. It has a defiling effect on everybody around us. And I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought. And that ought to challenge all of us to do whatever it takes to deal with our bitterness and turn it over to the Lord. Number four, I want to talk to you about what the Bible says on how to overcome bitterness. Look at verse number 13 of our text. It says, and make straight paths for your feet. The poster child in the scripture for bitterness is Esau. And when you think about Esau, the Bible here says that Esau was a fornicator and a profane person. He married wives of the land of Canaan, women of whom his parents did not approve. When Jacob was getting ready to be sent to Padanaram to flee from, you know, mama's wanting to get Jacob out of town because she's afraid that Esau's going to kill him. And she had just cause for that. What was her reasoning? She didn't say, let's send Jacob to, to, to my family so that he doesn't take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. She didn't say it that send him away so that his brother doesn't kill him. She had an ulterior motive and and a hidden agenda, and she made it sound more righteous and good. And that's the way that Jacob and his mama really approached their life, is they just weren't real straightforward type of people. But when Esau heard what his mom and dad said about sending Jacob off because they were afraid that he would marry one of the daughters of Canaan, it says in Genesis 28 and verse number 8, And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father, he'd already married several of them. 
Why did it take that statement for Esau to figure out that mom and dad didn't approve of my wives? Why wasn't Esau checking? Why wasn't Esau going to dad and say, hey, dad, I really, uh, I really like this girl. What, what do you think of her? No, Esau was just doing his own thing, doing what he wanted to do without any regard for mom and dad. Then, verse 9, when Esau went unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, uh, Maalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and so forth. So here's what Esau, the way that he saw it, mom and dad doesn't like my wives, the daughters of Canaan. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to take a wife of the daughters of Ishmael. Now that's still, that was closer to approval, but it still wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. And so obviously Esau was not only a fornicator, you know, maybe, maybe there's a possibility that that fornicators talking about more than just spiritual fornication, that perhaps maybe Esau is fooling around doing stuff that he ought not do, and so he had to marry those women. We don't know. All we know is that Esau is classified by God Almighty as a fornicator and a profane person. What's a profane person? We use the term profanity. And when Esau is characterized as a profane person. It doesn't mean that he was a cusser, although he probably was. But the term profane simply means kind of a, kind of a, a little bit of, uh, of the world and a, profane is something that's common. It's worldly, if you will. Not totally vile. Uh, something that's profane isn't something that's filthy or clean. It's just something that's kind of got a little bit of both. The high priests or the priests of God, it was their job to put the difference between the clean and the unclean, between the holy and the profane. So holiness and profaneness are total opposites. If you're not holy, if you're not set apart and sanctified, and you're just basically kind of um, assimilated into this world, and, and wouldn't you agree, brothers and sisters, that the average believer today who says, I believe in Jesus, I'm on my way to heaven, the average, the majority, I think I could say, are not people that you'd look at their life and say, they're holy. You'd say, they're profane. They, their lifestyle is an assimilation. You don't tell a whole lot of difference between their lifestyle and the lifestyle of lost people. In fact, I, I got news for you. The average Baptist in this county, you go out to Mormon country where I'm from, You'll see a cleaner lifestyle by Mormons that are not born again. Cleaner lifestyle than you see Baptists who believe in the deity of Christ and believe in the cross and all of the things that are, we're supposed to believe in. Something's wrong with that equation. And, and I think the problem here is the bitterness has made people more like Esau. Esau is trying to figure out a way to get what he wants 
and just simply appease mom and dad. Oh, I'll marry a daughter of Ishmael. Not exactly what they're looking for. It's a compromise, if you will. And isn't modern Christianity characterized by a compromise? Hey, let's reach the world by acting like the world. You know what? When you act like the world and you reach the world, what did you reach them to? You reached them for the world. It, it just doesn't work. And for, for number one reason, it's not biblical. And God knows more about uh, reaching people and our methodology than man does. While Cain is not listed in the category of bitterness, it is obvious that Cain belongs on the list. Remember when Cain was wroth? He became bitter. Why? Because he wasn't treated the way he thought he was, deser- was deserving. God accepted Abel's offering. Cain, his offering was not accepted. And instead of Cain fixing the problem and getting the right offering, he chose to become bitter And it didn't take very long until that bitterness defiled many. Look at verse number 13 again. It says, Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. There will come a time when you will be weak or you will be wounded. If your paths are not straight and easy to navigate, your heart and your life will go in the wrong direction. There are many, many people who end up getting hurt in a major way. And really, they were perhaps have justification for saying, I'm a victim here, somebody Somebody totally abused me or mistreated me. But the reality of it is, is that it would have never happened if they would have never been there in the first place. And that's what God is saying. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. There's going to come a time where you cannot control your circumstances. You cannot manage it. You better live your life acknowledging your own weakness and you better shore up those weaknesses. You better build in those defenses and you better make sure that you avoid certain places that perhaps maybe when the time comes you're not going to be able to handle it. You know, Joseph was good about that. He chose not to even be in the house with Potiphar's wife. She had to trick him. And then once she tricked him, you know what he did? He left his coat and he got out of there. Why? Because he was wise enough to know, I can't handle this. And you know, because he did right, he got mistreated And the whole time that he is in the dungeon for year after year after year, you know what? He never got bitter. He never got bitter. Why? Because he knew that he was at the right place doing the right thing. He made straight paths for his feet. And when disaster came, and listen, who lives a life but what disaster doesn't eventually come to all of us? 
something that we didn't expect, we could not have prepared for. Somebody hurt us, somebody devastated us. I mean, our portfolio crash, we lose our job, rejection, rejection, whatever the case may be, no one's getting through this life unscathed. But the question is, are we making straight paths for our feet so that when we get weak, when we get wounded, it won't cause us to be turned out of the way? Verse number 13, but rather let it be healed. Listen, I I don't mean to be crude this morning, but I don't know a better way to say it. You gotta learn to quit picking the scab. That's what bitter people do. They got this wound and they just can't leave it alone. You've seen the cone of shame that they put on dogs? Because dogs just can't, they'll get certain wounds or whatever and they just, they, they'll keep gnawing at it until they get infection and they won't leave it alone and something's got to protect them from themselves. I, I can remember, I, I, I wouldn't recommend this, I never actually saw anybody do this, but I remember when I lived north of Asheville, all of the, the, the coon hunters and the people that had dogs and, you know, back, back then dogs would get mange. Have you ever seen a dog with the mange? It's a pitiful sight. I mean, they look like they're on chemo or something. Their hair's falling out, but what they're doing is they've got this mite and they're, it's itching them, and so they're just gnawing until they're just losing all of their hair. And you know what the old-timers said that they would do? They'd take a 55-gallon barrel full of used motor oil, and they'd take that dog by the back of the neck, and they'd dunk it in that used motor oil. How many of you have heard that before? Oh, good. I thought, I thought I'm going to get myself in trouble with this one. My disclaimer, I'm not saying do that to your, to Fido, okay, or Fifi. I'm just saying that's what they did. And evidently, I, you know, I guess probably what it did is it kept the dogs from licking or gnawing at themselves. I know if you dunk me in oil and I'm probably not going to be gnawing on myself. But rather, let it be healed. Some healing takes some time. But, and, 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 and you, you, it's natural, especially, I don't know how girls are, but boys are the worst. It's like, you've got a scab there. It's like, oh. you just, it, you, your attention and your focus is on that one place of injury on your body. You, have, you ever had a sore in your mouth? You can't stop it. It's like your tongue's always messing with it. Till finally you just step and say, why am I doing this? Leave it alone. Bitterness, if you'll just give it some time, quit picking the scab and let it be healed. Look at verse number 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You have to get off the road of bitterness and you got to get on the path of peace and holiness. Verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Diligent means stop putting it off and do what you know you need to do. 
People get so comfortable with their bitterness that they're scared of living life without it. I Several times here in the last few months, there hasn't been... I mean, I've wanted to just sit and veg in my recliner and absolutely nothing watchable has been on. And I made the mistake of a couple months ago putting it on this program called Hoarders. Now, I've seen hoarders. I, my, a good friend of mine in high school, his, his grandparents were hoarders. I remember going into their house and literally just stuff just stacked to the ceiling and just little maze paths going from, you know, to the recliner and there was a little pathway where grandpa could watch TV and then a little pathway over here where grandma could sit and watch. I mean, it was like, wow, I couldn't, couldn't believe it. But when you watch this program, you know what goes more, even, even is worse than the clutter and the claustrophobia? It's the mice defecate everywhere. And, and you watch these professionals are trying to get the people to get rid of this stuff that has been defecated all over. And they won't get rid of it. And you just watch them. It's like they just, they, no, 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 we, we, we can clean that up. No, you can't. It's, it's killing you. It's giving you diseases. It's killing you socially. Your parent, your, your children and your grandchildren can't even come and spend time with you. And you know what they're doing? They're just like, and, and that sounds just kind of, Ridiculous, but do you know that's what the bitter person is doing? It's hanging on to something that if we just let it go, you'd be a whole lot better. Finally, look at verse 16 and 17. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Afterward, he was rejected, verse 17. He wanted the blessing, but you know what his problem all along? He didn't value the birthright. The birthright meant nothing to him. The birthright was a spiritual concept. All Esau wanted was the blessing. He wanted more cattle. He wanted more gold. He wanted more fame. He wanted more glory. But folks, the birthright and the blessing are supposed to go together. And he didn't value the birthright. He didn't value what God, God didn't, God didn't value the cattle. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. And by the way, Esau ended up getting all of the things that he wanted to begin with. When Jacob came back from Padanaram and Esau met him and Jacob had a, an, an offering of cattle, Esau's like, eh, I don't, I, I got enough, brother. I don't need all that stuff. And Esau was happy with Jacob because really, That's all that Esau wanted to begin with. But Jacob is the one that's wrestling with God. Jacob is the one that's basically, uh, you know, at the windows of heaven and has the blessings of God. And you know what? God changed Jacob's name to Israel. He's the father of God's people, the children of Israel. Why he valued the birthright. If you want to overcome your bitterness... 
then you've got to stop being like Esau in your heart and in your conduct. Quit being a profane person and start valuing the blessings of God more than the blessings of life. My very last point, number five, and this I'll go quickly here. I just I, I had to throw this in, and thank you for your patience here this morning. These are just some additional Bible verses on bitterness. Romans three fourteen, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. If you got bitterness in your heart, don't let it out. Don't don't talk about it. Put a put a lid on it, so to speak. If you can't deal with it or you won't deal with it, at least don't spew it out of your mouth. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. As a husband, God has commanded me and commanded you to not be bitter against your wife. I think there's a reason why God put that in there. Because there is a tendency and there is a natural tendency, if you will, for this to be a problem. And God says, don't do it. And then Ephesians 4, verse number 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Boy, there's a whole sermon right there. But the bottom line is God says, let it be put away from you. Let it be healed. My concluding thoughts. I, I looked up what's the best way to kill the roots of weeds. And once again, first thing that popped up was something written by Bob Vila. He's the guy that knows everything about everything at your home, right? Bob Vila? Isn't he like the Martha Stewart of outside stuff? He's the man Martha Stewart. Here's what he said. This is interesting. This is really interesting. The best thing to kill the roots of weeds, regular old table salt is very effective at killing weeds. Put just a pinch down at the base of each plant. It will kill the weedy offender. It'll get diluted within a couple of rainfalls. It'll render the soil uninhabitable for several months. So make sure you apply just a small amount and only where needed. I read in the Word of God, of course we know that salt is a good thing. Christians are supposed to be salt and light, Jesus said, if the salt has lost its savor, then it's good for nothing. We know that every sacrifice is supposed to be given with salt, the Levitical laws. But it's interesting, in Judges 9.45, it says, Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and slew the people that was therein and beat down the city and sowed it with salt. He took all of their, their, their farmland and their garden areas, and he put salt in there, so that it wouldn't grow anything. You know what we need to do? We need to put some salt in our life so that that bitterness can't grow. And then in 2 Kings 2.21, it says, He went forth unto the spring of waters, cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. 
there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. Here is some poisonous, bitter waters that the man of God threw some salt in there and God used that salt for healing. You want to fix the root of bitterness and um, so forth, we need to apply the salt of the Word of God. Not just read it, not just believe it, but put it into practice in our life. And as Ephesians said, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let go of your bitterness. Let it be healed. Don't let it defile you. Don't let it spring up. Don't let it poison you or those around you. Put to practice the Word of God. And let's be a people that are characterized by our gratitude, our thankfulness, our appreciation to God, not by our bitterness and something that wronged us in the past, someone who wronged us. Let it go. Make straight paths for your feet and move on. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the attention of your people here this morning. We pray that something has been said that will be a help and an encouragement. We pray for all of our live stream listeners as well, that perhaps maybe somebody's struggling with bitterness. We pray, Father, that the Word of God would, um, would provide the help that they need. Help us all, Father, to keep bitterness out of our hearts. And Lord, if we have bitterness, help us to recognize it and help us to deal with it according to the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remain seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. The pianist plays softly. I'm going to be silent here for a few minutes and give each and every one of you some time to pray. Deal with your bitterness today. Don't put it off. Be diligent. Be diligent. Don't leave this building today carrying bitterness with you. Give it to God. Think about what Jesus did for you. If anybody had just cause for bitterness, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Move on. Let it go. Put it in your past.